Welcome. This is the first podcast for money-guy.com. My name is Brian Preston. I'm really excited this since this is our first podcast. Um, before we kick into the intro and really get things going here, I just kind of wanted to say this thing will be your normal podcast on financial planning and money. I've heard some of the other ones out there, and um, truthfully, it sounds like they got guns stuck to their head, that they're being forced and dragged into this. We're going to try to make it as fun, as exciting as it possibly can be. Well, as, as exciting as money can be anyway, but we're going to try to kick it off and make sure this you know that this is not your parents' financial planning podcast. With that, let's hit it. Well, here we are. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to this first podcast. And I got to tell you, um, you probably wondered who in the world Brian Preston is, the money guy. And first, let me tell you, you can check us out at money-guy.com. That's M-O-N-E-Y-G-U-Y.com. And, um, you know, what we're trying to do here, the whole purpose is to really make money much more understandable, to bring this to the masses. There's so many hard ways to get good financial planning advice unless you've got the mega wealth out there and I know that there's a gap out there so we're going to try to fill those voids. Now you're probably trying to figure out who Brian Preston is. What makes me the money guy? Well I'll tell you who I am. If you knew a guy back in high school that was cutting the coupons, who was um, the tightwad that would never lend you money unless you um, pretty much signed off on a note, if you ever went on a date with a guy back maybe in college or high school and he pulled out a coupon on your first or second date that's me. You, you have met your match with me. I'm one of the tightest guys you've ever met. Um, I've tried to turn that into a career. I realized that really the only thing I was good at in life was slicing and dicing up the numbers to figure out how to save additional money, and I've tried to turn that into a, a pretty good career. Um, I'm actually a partner at a, a firm called Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management located in McDonough, Georgia. Um, but we, we really have a great practice. I have a partner up in Augusta, Georgia in our second office by the name of Bill Cleveland, and I have... Um, Two really good assistants that helped me out with Priscilla and Heidi. And Heidi's actually sitting in the room right now helping me out with the podcast. But um, that's me. I, I do have a background also is um, give you the technical stuff so you can feel a little bit more competent besides me being just a tightwad. Um, I am a, a certified public accountant, certified financial planner, as well as a personal financial specialist. Um, so I, I do this for a living, and I'm, I'm going to try to help you out as much as possible. Now, with that said, I will tell you, you're listening to me through a podcast. I don't know your specific issues. I don't know your age. I don't know where you are in life, how much you've saved. So you need to make sure that you go check out any advice I give and make sure it truly is right for you. That's kind of my disclaimer just to keep me out of trouble. I want you to know that you need to watch out for yourself. Go check out what I say. But by no means is this paid advice that you um, should count on. Um, let me tell you about the overview of the show, how we're going to handle this. And I really want to get your input, too. You can contact me at JBP, that's my initials, JBP at Preston-Cleveland.com. I'd like you to contact me if you have any suggestions or if you want to tell me how you like the show. But um, the overview is going to be we're always going to try to kick you off with an, an intro just to tell you a little bit about what's going on in the show. We're always going to have a few investment articles, probably from the Wall Street Journal, Money Magazine, Kiplinger's, Smart Money, some of the other magazines that I read out there. And then we're always going to have a, a segment where we actually talk about what the issue is for today. Today's issue, if you just want to know, kind of skipping ahead, is we're going to talk about retirement planning and building true financial independence. 
Um, I do have some articles for us to go over as well. Um, I'm going to cover everything, including how you can trim up your Christmas list for next year so you don't have to send out as many Christmas cards. i got a great article that will tell you how to cut off a few people. Um, college savings. We're going to also talk about some taxes as well as how you can make some free and clear cash just for spending money on a credit card. There's not too many things that a credit card can do for you that are good, but if I can generate you some cash from these credit cards I'm going to mention to you, I think it's all a good thing. Um, I'll also close out every segment with a little bit of homework. i got some books that I always want to recommend to you just so you can kind of catch up to speed and see how things are going. But with that said, let's jump right into some of these articles that, I, that I've pulled up. Um, the first one, when I, you know, I kind of I kind of teased you a little bit and said that I was going to help you, you know, trim down your Christmas card list. Truly, um, I was kind of making a little fun there because what I've got is an article from the December 14th Wall Street Journal, this is 2005, um, by one of the um, columnists that I think is just really good for the Wall Street Journal. He usually writes in the personal journal section. His name is Jonathan Clements. Um, he wrote an article and it was titled, Why Big Insurers Are Staying Away From This Year's Hot Investment Product. And um, I want to tell you about a, new, a product out there called Indexed Annuities. These, um, Jonathan wrote about this and, and what these are, these are annuities that are sold. They're highly, highly complex, but they're tied to the S&P 500. And um, how these things are sold in the, few, you know, in the past and as well as now is that they will tell you that they can give you part of the market return without the downside of the market, meaning they're going to guarantee you're going to make some type of money. So they've really reeled in a lot of um, you know, what they've used with this mix of upside potential with downside protection is they've really been popular with a lot of senior citizens. And Jonathan talked about what, um, how big this market share is and, and where he talked about in 2004 there was $23 billion worth of this product sold. And then so far in 2005, the first nine months of 2005, I should say there was $21 billion. So just a huge market in this, and there's a lot of insurers staying away. And, and I think you need to be careful. The reason I said you could trim your, your Christmas list down is because I say anybody who ever walks through your doors to try to sell you, I don't care if it's your brother-in-law, your uncle, your brother, your sister, anybody who ever tries to bring you and sells you these indexed annuities, write them off your Christmas card list because they're truly, truly not your friend. Because these things, here's the problem with them. And I have no problem with the insurance industry. I have quite a few friends that are in the insurance in business, and they've helped out a lot of my clients. But I always want to bring to your attention, the consumer, anything that I think is bad. And the reason these things are drawing criticism from their own, I mean, we've got the insurance, other insurance companies criticizing these products, like it talks about in this article, you know something's not right. Um, and they're criticized because, first of all, they're extremely, extremely complex. Second, they have awful performance. I'm about to give you some stats to show you that you'd just be better buying a treasury, meaning you know pretty much the safest investment you can buy through the government than buying these annuities. They also have a 9 to 10% commission rate, meaning that whoever sells you these fine products, usually a relative probably or um, some so-called friend, they're going to make 9 to 10% of whatever you give them that first year, which is just disgusting. Um, they have surrender charges that can extend for a 10-year period. If you think about this, these things are popular with the senior citizens, yet they have a 10-year surrender period. You can just see how there's a little bit of a conflict there on um, being appropriate for these individuals. So who is and who is not selling these products? First of all, they've been criticized um, by the NASD. The National Association of Securities Dealers has sent out some um, issues on it. The state of New Jersey 
Um, they're, they're, the district attorney there has had some problems with them, as well as um, Massachusetts and some other states have had um, a, a few issues with these products. But there's even quotes on file with such insurance carriers like Northwestern, some of your big boys, the guys that, you know, I'll even tell you I have my own personal insurance. Some, several of my policies are actually with Northwestern, really good insurance company, as well as Mass Mutual. These are big companies that have come out and have said bad things about this. You don't see any of the big guys selling these products like New York Life, Mass Mutual, Northwestern, or Guardian. None of them are actually selling these products right now. And Mass Mutual actually did a study, and listen to this, and I won't get bogged down into the details so much that this is completely boring because i got to move on to some of these other articles. But they did a study at Mass Mutual comparing the, just the plain S&P 500, the Standard & Poor's 500, the biggest 500 companies in the United States, with these indexed annuities from, for the last 30 years, ending December of 2003. And you know what they found out? If you would have invested... During that period, you would have, over the 30-year period, within the indexed annuity, you would have only gotten a 5.8% a year rate of return. With the S&P 500, without dividends being reinvested, you would have gotten an 8.5% rate of return. And then if you did reinvest as dividends, which I would always recommend to my clients, you would have had a 12.2% rate of return, double the rate of return. And just for that matter, just to, to kind of throw some salt on the wound, if you'd have just bought the super safe treasury bill, the T-bills, which the government sends out, you would have averaged a 6.4% rate of return. So where did all that money go? You know where it went. It went in the back pocket of somebody. So it's just an awful, awful product. Um, don't consider even looking at, at investing in these. There was another on the, on the article that I'm reading. Looking at, they actually have a study here that shows the S&P with dividends. If you had invested $100,000 back in 1964, would have been worth close to $4.8 million right now. Whereas it's the best eight indexed annuity products, if you would have bought them, if you could have bought them back in 1964, would only be worth $1.1 million. And then the worst products with the worst things out there would um, only be worth $366,000. So you can just see how it's not the best thing in the world for you to be investing in. Moving on. Second article I got is um, choosing a 529 plan. Now, Probably if you've got children and you've thought about saving for college, you want to know what you need to be investing in, if you need to be buying into the state plan or an out-of-state plan or some of these other plans that you've probably heard other people talk about. And um, the, the question of this article, this is from the January 4th um, Wall Street Journal. It's also, also by Jonathan Clements. You can tell I'm a big fan of his. Is talking about choosing a 529 college savings plan and when it makes sense to go out-of-state or stay in-state. And he actually even puts um, the top five plans that he sees out there. And he lists the, um, the Michigan Education Savings Program, which is sponsored by TAA-CREF, which is the old teacher's pension. you got the Nevada plan, which is done by Vanguard. The New York 529 Direct. Now, pay attention when you're investing in New York that um, there are two plans that they offer. One's the Direct and the other is to a financial advisor. The Direct is the one with the most cost-conscious um, fee structure. The Utah Education Savings Plan, which is another Vanguard plan, and then the Virginia College America um, is actually a plan that can be sold by financial advisors, but you only want to buy the F shares. Those are the shares that um, do not have the upfront sales charge. Um, the, the article gets into the 85 different plans that are out there and how you choose which ones to go with. It says if you want to go with the in-state, and I actually recommend to a lot of my clients that you do stay in-state, especially here in Georgia, 
they have, we use TA CREF as our sponsor here in Georgia, and, and we use a plan that um, the internal expenses are very good. You can base it off of the child's age, but you also, if you make less than $100,000 a year, you can get a, a tax deduction. Um, and that's what that's really what helps out. But he says that you know if you don't get that tax deduction, or if your income does take you out of the point, if you're over that hundred thousand dollar level and you can't get that tax deduction, you might want to look at some of these out of state plans. And that's like your Vanguard, which is Utah and Nevada, as well as the Michigan plan, which is capped at fees at 0.6 percent. Whereas, like I said, Georgia's is at 0.78. Um, you can kind of look at at how the plans are. Another real quick piece of advice. Never buy a 529 plan, I think, if you, from a financial advisor unless you're doing this Virginia plan, which lets you do the F-shares. Because if a financial planner or an advisor or broker dealer is selling these things, typically they're making some money off of you. And I think college savings is such a – you have so few years to save for it just because your children, you really don't want to be paying commissions. You don't want any portion of that money going out into commissions, so you probably want to buy the self-directed plans um, and you can get more information on this, and I'll put this on our website, you know, money-guy.com, money-guy.com. It's savingforcollege.com. You can kind of get an overview of all these plans. But you might want to check out the January 4th, 2006 Wall Street Journal in the personal journal section and look at what Jonathan wrote in that because he does have a good overview of these plans. Um, we are getting into its January, end of January, about to be in February. And um, the IRS is on all of our minds. You know, I know, we all talk about the IRS. We all get a little nervous when you hear the word IRS. Um, I've got from this weekend's Wall Street Journal, they had a, the five best list. And they, this is a, they had a, a list of the five best books out there to research, um, you know, what prepara- preparing your taxes and issues you might face if you were ever audited by the IRS. And the five books is they had one, the, num- the number five book on the list was J.K. Lasser's Your Income Tax 2006. Um, it was, it, it's a good just overview. It's just a reprise for to doing your 2005 taxes. Um, kind of gives you the ins and outs of all the different deductions. Uh, another Number four was Tax This, An Insider's Guide to Standing Up to the IRS. I thought this book was kind of interesting with my background in public accounting. This book is really... Um, is a list of, it's done by a senior trial attorney who tells you how you can level playing the field when you're dealing with the IRS and dealing with an audit. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting, even though I will tell you when we get to number one, um, you'll see, because they actually had a quote in here, you do not want to go into an audit by yourself. That is the worst, worst thing you can do. If you ever get audited by the IRS, sure, go read these books, but you really need to have somebody in there to bat with you because I've just seen... It is an ugly, ugly situation if you try to go deal with the IRS by yourself. The third book on the list is What the IRS Doesn't Want You to Know. And it's done by Martin S. Kaplan. Um, This is his ninth book, uh, and it talks about, uh, it updates all the different issues that are facing, um, you know, you as a tax preparer uh, and a taxpayer. But it also goes into details that your tax accountant is probably too scared to tell you in person. You know, a lot of times... As accountants, we know different things, aggressive things that you could do to try to minimize your taxes, but to be honest, you're too scared to tell your clients because it's kind of aggressive. Well, this book um, by Mr. Kaplan supposedly goes into some of those strategies. Number two on the list was Confessions of a Tax Collector. This book, interesting if you read the detail on it. Um, We've been hearing in recent history how the IRS is supposedly much friendlier. They are now our friends. You can call these 1-800 numbers. You can go and talk to them. And I think this is actually what has led to so many people thinking that they can represent themselves. But truly, this is a great insight into what the IRS looks at taxpayer, 
how they really feel about you guys. Um, this, this, the author of this book was written by um, Richard Yancey. He had a 12-year career as a revenue officer, meaning that he was a field employee that the IRS sent out to collect um, additional taxes from people who would not pay their taxes or they didn't have the money to pay their taxes. And he, Mr. Yancey actually recalls the, the advice he was given by um, a senior revenue officer. And th this, just, this just sent chills down my spine when I read this. This is what the senior officer had told him when he first came on to the IRS. It said, find where they are, track what they do, and then learn what they have. And then execute what they fear. See, do you see, how is this a friend of the IRS? When they, they basically want to come in and find out where your weaknesses are, find out what you have, and then they want to extract based upon what you're scared of. Um, that, that scared the heebie-jeebies out of me when I read that. Um, they also, this book, you know, it sounds like it might have a comical edge to it too because it talks about in their field training, one of the things that they are told when they're first learning is to never enter a taxpayer's kitchen. And you're like, okay, so they're worried about getting bribed by, you know, your Aunt Bessie's best chocolate chip cookies. No, they're worried in their online manual, on the, on the training manual, it cautions a, a kitchen usually contains knives and other implements which may be used as a weapon. So somehow in their field training, um, they're told to stay away from your kitchen just in case it, get, it gets ugly. The last book um, that's on this list is The IRS Problem Solver, and it's by Daniel Pilla. Um, and, and, and the way this was written, and it, I thought this was quite humorous, it said, and I'm just reading straight off of the review, it says, Daniel Pilla provides the nine valuable secrets to winning your audit, but bear in mind that the general rule is never try to handle an IRS audit yourself. And then in quotes it puts, it's like trying to perform your own brain surgery. So you really do want to try to stay away from um, representing yourself if you ever do get a full audit. This was a nice list put together by um, Randy Blostein. Um, like I said, it was in the Wall Street Journal from this past weekend. I think it, these are sound like some, some good books if you're looking to, to get some advice on preparing your taxes as well as if you're facing a little trouble with the IRS. Okay, I teased you in the beginning. I said how we're going to make some cash from spending money. And um, I've got this great, this was also from this week's Wall Street Journal. I've got this great article on the cash back card face-off. You know, so many, I, I, if you remember when credit cards started giving you something back. You start off, you know, we had the frequent flyer miles, we had the hotel rewards. If you have credit cards and you're not getting anything back, you're wasting, wasting, wasting an opportunity because let me tell you, these guys are making a fortune off of your spending on these credit cards. You need to be making something back yourself. So, you know, the dividend plans with the, air, with the airlines have kind of gone out of vogue because so many of the airlines are starting to have financial hardships. Plus, we've seen how many miles that have been built up from these plans. I think some of the airline industries are starting to get a little, little nervous about the liability that's probably sitting out there, so they've started tightening up on their, their blackout dates and other things. So really what we've, we've started to notice is that the cashback cards are getting to be where they're king. So I want to give you an update on tell you what some of the best cashback cards out there are. Um, the, the few that are mentioned in this article, and like I said, this is from the January 28, 29, 2006 weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal in the Money and Investing section. It talks about the cashback face-off, and it, it mentions the Immigrant Direct Savings Bank. Um, that is a great bank, by the way, if you have money market accounts. They have, um, you can attach your own personal bank account. I'm getting on a sidebar here, but I think it's just so important to tell you. You can attach your own checking account to the Immigrant Direct 
um, money market account, and it is yielding four and a quarter percent right now. That is unbelievable for a money market. I mean, you can put the money in one day and pull it out the next. Unbelievable what you can do with that bank. And um, I'm going to put links to all these different credit cards on my website. That's money-guy.com. So if you want to, if you want to just listen to this and then go check out the website, you can get the links to all this information. That's money-guy.com. Because remember, I'm the money guy. I'm going to help bring um, restore order to your financial chaos out there. But um, Immigrant Direct has, they're, they're making the claim that they've got the best cash card out there with one and a quarter percent. But then you've also got Fidelity Investments. They have a one and a half percent card. And then Fidelity Investments also came out with a card last year that topped that card, which actually gets you 2%. But that one's only for 529 plans. It rolls that money right into their 529s. And then Bank of America has a card that gets 2%. So you say, well, wait a minute, what's the catch? Let me read you the fine print so you can save you a little bit of the research trouble. Um, Immigrant Direct, all they require, they really do pay one and a quarter percent on anything and everything, but they, what they do require is that you've got to have $10,000 in their money market savings account. So if you don't have the $10,000, um, you might want to look at some of these other cards. Uh, Fidelity does have a one and a half percent card. The only catch is that you do have to have a Fidelity investment account. But after I get to talking to you about retirement planning today, I don't think that's going to be much of an issue because you're probably going to want to run out and open up some type of investment account as soon as you hear us how important it is to be saving money. Um, and that's just for the cashback card. The way that works is every $5,000 you spend, they will deposit $75 into your investment account. So that's where the 1.5% comes from. Now, Fidelity also has a 2% card, but that is only for, um, it's attached to their 529 plans that they have. Fidelity is um, just like TIA, CREF, and Vanguard. They have 529 plans, you know, with certain states. You can go do the research. Like I said, I'm going to attach links to all these credit cards on the website so you can see which one works for us for you. Now, the Bank of America has the 2% advantage, but what they don't tell you, and this one is, this is only for the big spenders out there, for the really wealthy guys. To get to that 2%, you have to spend at least $50,000 a year. So that's a, that's a pretty hefty bill that you've got to be spending on your credit card to get that full 2% back. So um, I would, you know, personally, I will tell you, I think I'm thinking about looking at the Fidelity Investments with the 1.5% because that is just a tremendous opportunity to be able to get $75 for every $5,000 that you spend because it does add up. But if you do anything, please get you a rebate card, get you some type of um, bonus card that's giving you some benefit for um, the spending you're doing on the credit cards. Now, we've gone through the articles. I'm going to get a sip of water real quick. I think it's also important we get in right into the heart of the subject matter of retirement planning and um, building financial independence. Now, there's a lot of things. I'll tell you, it's, it's really funny to me. Is that right before we were about to start recording this podcast, I was looking over my articles, and I have a great article, as you can imagine, no surprise. It's from um, the July 20th, 2005 Wall Street Journal and Jonathan Clements, and it's talking about the personal rate of savings and it, it, if it's enough for America. And at the time of this article, back in July, like I said, this is July 20th of 2005, when I first saw this article, the savings rate was 1.3%. Now, it was calculated by the Commerce Department's Bureau of Economic Analysis at the end of 2004. So, we're at 1.3%, which just sounds dreadful to me. And then I get, right before we're about to go on with the recording of this, 
I see come across the internet on, on the AP wire that the savings rate, this just came out today by the way, has dropped down to a negative 0.5%. So, so take this into account now. I, I, wanted to, I want to give you some history based upon what Jonathan has here in his article, is that the savings rate in, in the past, and this is talking about back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, has been somewhere in the range of 8 to 10%. And that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Everybody should be saving at least 10%. Isn't that the rule of thumb that we've always been told we need to be saving 10%? Well, then you see in the article today that we're actually spending 0.5 below me. That's a minus. Means that we actually went below, above, and beyond what we actually make, and then dipped into our savings to spend money this past year. And 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 that's just really sick because one of the first things that I'm going to tell you to build financial independence is you've got to be, you truly, truly got to be the disciplined person that is going to save money every month. And, and, and I'm going to repeat that: you've got to save money every month and, you know and, and it seems like so much of our society now has gotten where we just spend 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 and um and, and it, it scares me it scares me a lot because if you think about it um we've only had 401ks and self-directed retirement plans really for the last 20 20 30 years i mean 20 to 30 years before that everybody was on pensions so what in the world are we going to be like as a country <laughs> you know for that matter the world when, when everybody retires in the next 20 to 30 years because pensions are going away. You've probably heard about all the trouble that's going on with the auto workers, you know, and, and Ford and GM are having a lot of trouble. Um, you know, nobody's getting these pensions anymore. It used to be you'd go work, you know, our grandparents could go work for a few years for a company, 30 years, 40 years, get these pensions, retire, and never really have to worry about things. Well, now you think about it, you don't get pensions. You're, you're, it's all on your shoulders. You're going to get a little bit of Social Security, which, you know, pardon me, I'm a young guy. I get kind of upset about how much money gets taken for Social Security. And then um, I could go on and on about Social Security. You die before you um, get your benefits, they're gone. Your family gets $255. Yippee. Pretty exciting about that. But, um, you know, so Social Security isn't going to be your catch-all. Uh, you know, you're not going to have a pension, so it's all on your shoulders. So all you've got is your 401ks, your IRAs, your Roth IRAs that hopefully you're saving. And um, you see articles like this, and, and you start to realize nobody's saving money out there. You know, and I'm kind of, with the industry I'm in, doing financial planning and wealth management, I deal with people who are saving money. So it's, um, you know, I just assume everybody's doing what I'm doing, what my friends are doing, and what my clients are doing. But then you see these articles, and it scares the mess out of you. It really does, because it means as a country, we're not doing what we need to do. Now, I'm going to come back around to this article that Jonathan wrote back in July, because he wrote, the title of this article was, Forget the Rule of Thumb, Saving 10% of Your Salary is No Longer Enough. And, and you know, and, and that is so, so true. I will tell you, if, if any of you have ever read, and I'm going to assign this in the homework section, and I'm kind of giving you guys a cheat. Um, if you read The Millionaire Next Door, and some of these, The Wealthy Barber, and some of these other books I'm going to assign to you, you really need to start thinking about becoming hyper-savers, where you're saving 15 to 20% of your gross. Now, notice I didn't say net. That's not after tax. That's gross. That's before your taxes. That's before your Social Security. That's before your 401k. Everything. You need to be saving 15 to 20% of your gross salary. And you take that from we're spending 0.5% more than we make, you can see we're a long, long way from being where we need to be as a country. So 
I wanted to draw your attention to, to where we are before I even go into this retirement savings and financial independence to tell you how, how important it is that you start doing what you need to be doing. Because unless we all come together and start doing this, what are you going to do? I have people all the time come in my doors as prospects who call me up. They're in their late 50s. You can even say late 40s, even 60s. I've seen them all. And they don't have much money to their name. You know, and, and that's what this article um, in this same article that Jonathan put out, it says, according to the AARP's analysis of the Federal Reserve 2001 Survey of Consumer Finances, households headed by baby boomers had median financial assets of just $50,000. And that, that's crazy. $50,000. These are people who are baby boomers and they've only saved $50,000 over their lifetime. Now, if you do that on a 5% withdrawal rate, meaning you just take 5% of that $50,000, what do you think that's going to generate for you per year as income? It generates about $2,500 worth of income. Social Security, what's that going to give you? Another fifteen grand on top of it? How many people can live off of $17,000 a year? So unless we can get our acts in order, um, a lot of us could be working until we're 70, 80, 90 years old, which is kind of a scary thought to me. So I'm just trying to scare you a little bit before we get into this topic, so you know, know how important this is to really get to work and start doing the right thing. Now, coming back a little bit, uh, you know, I've already trashed the IRS a little bit and told you how I'm scared. By the way, I pay all my taxes. I don't take any aggressive deductions because I'm scared to death of the IRS. But um, they did come out back in the fall of 2004. The IRS sends out these newsletters to um, business owners, and it's called the Retirement News for Employers. And um, in, this, in this newsletter that they send out, the IRS did um, a comical top 10 reasons why to put off saving for retirement, kind of after the takeoff of David Letterman, you know, he does his top 10s list. And they actually use a sense of humor. I'm going to read one or two of these, maybe even three of these um, reasons they said to put off retirement savings. Now, remember, this is the IRS. The IRS doesn't have a, a sense of humor about anything. They're worried about you stabbing them in the kitchen um, in their training manual. So these guys they really don't get much humor out of anything, but yet they're, they're trying to make a joke about retirement savings. And then we're going to double back and figure out why in the world the IRS would be trying to be good stewards and, and encourage you to save for retirement. But the number 10 reason on their list that you should put off retirement savings, you know, with their tongue-in-cheek comedy sketch here, is number 10, taking care of me financially will provide a wonderful character-building opportunity for my children. <laughs> I pause just because I want you to think about this. And then it says in here, it says, and so many chances for me to feel warm gratitude toward them. This, this is what the IRS has in their, in their newsletter. The, the, the number nine reason it says to put off retirement savings, I might get lucky. And then it's, it has it written after that, it says, you never know. I may win the lottery. Or I may remember be remembering the will of a long-lost relative. Or they might find out that my house is right in the middle of a diamond field. <laughs> so you can see... Um, and you'd be surprised how many people think they're going to win that lottery. But I will tell you there, there's a reason Ed McMahon is a very wealthy man from doing the, the publisher's clearinghouse or whatever the heck he's given out out there. Um, the third, the last one I'll read out to you is, because I hear this one from other people all the time, is maybe I won't live long enough to retire. And it says, life is so uncertain. Why should I miss out on high life now when I might not even need to have the money aside, put aside for my old age? That's kind of a pessimistic way to look at life, but... This is what the IRS put in this newsletter. There's a bunch of other reasons, but this is the comical side of it. 
And you ask yourself, why are they concerned? I will tell you why they're concerned. It's exactly what I just told you. They realize that Social Security is not going to be financially able to provide the retirement for everybody. So they want you as an individual and as an employer, if you have people working for you, to start doing the responsible thing and saving money for yourself. And um, they're, really try they're really nervous about this, and that's why they're trying to encourage everybody. Okay, I've gone over. I think I've browbeat you enough about why you need to be saving 15 to 20%. Now let's talk about what we need to save up money-wise. Most people, if you ask them how much money they think they'll need in retirement, what's the first number everybody throws out? It's usually a million bucks. million dollars is what everybody kind of thinks is the key number out there. Um, I don't know what it is, but everybody wants to be a millionaire. There's a reason all these books are titled Who Wants to Be You know, we have Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, the TV show, The Millionaire Next Door. Millionaire is just something about the American psyche that it really wants to be a millionaire. So I've got this nice little chart in front of me, and I'm going to try to put this in front of you. You know, you can think about the numbers. If we know we want to get to a million dollars by the time we're 65 years of age, how much do you think you need to start saving every month if you knew you were going to get a rate of return of just 10% a year? And I've got um, a list here starting from age one. So we could have a person just right out of the womb, you know, just born, and try to figure out how much they need to save up. And truly, if you have 64 years to save, meaning you're age one, you only have to put $14 a month away. That's incredible to me. That's probably just um, if you could cut yourself out, if you could start doing this for your children and saving $14 a month, that's nothing. That's like um, you know just not going to Starbucks you know once a week you know during the month. I mean that's nothing. You really can you can do $14 with your eyes closed. So let's be a little more realistic. Let's go up to the 10-year-old, you know, because this is the tightwad like me. Remember, I'm the guy that, you know, if you dated me back in high school or college, I was pulling the coupons out on our first or second date just to see what you're made of. So if you started, if you're like me, and you started when you're 10 years old, you only need to save $35 a month to have a million bucks by the time you're 65. Um, now, 20, you know, that's where most of us are out of high school, maybe in college, or maybe you didn't go the college route. So 20, you start saving, you're working. You only need to save $95 a month. And um, I can tell you just from my own personal experience, that's one of the things that got me to doing what I'm doing for a living. I had an economics teacher back in high school that challenged us as a class. He said something to the effect that if, you could, if I could convince you guys to save $100 a month, you know, by the time you all retired, you'd be millionaires. And I can remember sitting in that classroom back in high school thinking, this is insane. How is that possible? Because I've always heard it's so hard to become wealthy in this country. And then you had this economics teacher who's a retired military guy. Uh, you know, you, you know the type. He was kind of the dr drill sergeant on the way he did everything very dry. But he told this to us as a class, and, you know, and the light bulb went off in my head, and I started reading everything I could, and I, and I just realized how easy it was if you just put your mind to it and did the deferred gratification. Um, if you wait until you're 30, you're going to have to start saving $263 a month. If you wait until you're age 40, you're going to have to start saving $754 a month. It's getting ugly. This is called compounding interest. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, if you wait until you're 50, you got to start saving $2,400 a month. If you're waiting until you're 60 years of age, meaning you've only got five years to do it, you got to start saving $12,914 a month. If you wait until age 64, meaning you're a year from retirement, you can do the math. It's pretty much... Take a million dollars divided by 12, but there's a little bit of interest. You have to save $79,583. You might as well give up at that point. But um, these are some of the things you need to think about. All you have to do to save a million dollars, if you're young enough, 
because I'm hopefully there's gonna be a young crowd listening to this too. I'm hoping it's not just um, all older clients. I'm hoping that I can get some people who are right in college or even in high school to start realizing how important it is to start saving dollar, dollars and cents because you can be a millionaire by the time you retire with just a little bit of money if you start soon enough. And that's called the power of compounding. Now there's good and bad compounding. You know, and this is compounding is one of those things that Albert Einstein said was one of the most powerful things in the universe is because compounding rates of return is the interest you earn, it's the stock appreciation when you invest in stocks and mutual funds and so forth. That's the good side of what's compounding. The bad side of compounding is what's known as inflation. Inflation, you know, inflation is when, um, if you think about it, I can remember when I was a kid, um, my parents bought an all-brick house built by one of the nicest builders. I think they paid somewhere in the 50s to 60, maybe $70,000 back in the 70s. Same house these days would probably be in the $300,000 level. Um, if you can even get four-sided brick. How many neighborhoods actually are four-sided brick anymore? But that, that's just that's the bad side of inflation. Things cost much more now than they did back a few years ago. You know, wood costs more. If you've been to the gas pump recently, you know that obviously oil and gas costs more now. Um, so rising expenses are the bad side of, of compounding. So I also want to encourage you, I know I just scared you a little bit about that, you know, how much you've got to have to be a millionaire. But here's another one. I've got um, a study here, another chart that I just want to kind of go over just to make you understand how important it is to start as early as possible. I've got the uh, comparison here. I've got a guy who started saving when he was 22 years of age, saved for exactly nine years. So he saved from age 22 really to the end of his 30th birthday. So right before he was turning 31, he saved for just $2,000 a year for nine years. So he totally invested only about $18,000. And we're going to assume he earned only a 9% rate of return on this. Versus he's got a buddy who decided, you know, right out of college, he was going to hold off on the saving for a little bit. He was going to wait until he turned 31 to start saving money. So he partied that first nine years out of college instead of um, saving the money. But he saved from age 31 all the way to age 65. So he invested $70,000 because he's investing for a full 35 years, whereas the other guy only invested $18,000 because he just did nine years and he was done saving. Who do you think had more money? Remember, we got one that only invested $18,000 the first nine years after college versus his buddy who held off on saving, enjoyed the good life, probably went out and bought him a brand new Camaro <laughs> right out of college. Um, you know, we are south side. Um, you know, so he invested for 35 years. You'd be wrong if you chose the guy who started saving when he was 31. The, the gentleman who saved right out of college, who only invested $18,000, earning a 9% rate of return, by the time he was 65 years of age, he would have had $579,000 sitting in the bank. Versus the buddy who held off those first nine years, he would only have $470,000. So there's a $109,000 difference. And this is the guy who saved, if you do the math on that, he saved an additional $52,000. And yet he still has $109,000 less than his buddy. It just shows if you can start as soon as possible, there's never a bad, bad time to start investing. Do it as soon as possible and save, save, save as much as possible. The next chart, I want to talk about the um, bad side of inflation. I've got um, 
talking about where things could be in the next 20 years, and I just used some basic inflation uh, numbers that I had. If you think about, um, let's talk about something simple like milk. Let's only put a 3 to 4% inflation rate at 4%. You know, milk's about $2 a gallon right now. In 20 years, it's probably going to cost you about $5 a gallon. But let's talk about something that's going to cost a lot more in the future just because of the graying of America. A day in the hospital. Right now, a day in the hospital costs probably about $500. What do you think it's going to cost you in 20 years? It's going to cost you about $3,365 a day. Talking about a um, steak dinner, you know, go to, go to Chili's. Go to um, any of these restaurants around here that we have uh, down here on the south side. It's $35 to go out to eat. You know, assuming you're probably not, you know, getting too crazy. $35 is, is a decent amount of money. But in, five, in the next 20 years, probably that same meal is going to cost you about $93 at a 5% inflation rate. Funeral expenses, get a little dark on you here. You know, right now it's going to probably, um, you know, we just put an estimation here about $9,800. You can probably do it a little bit cheaper than that if you want just the pine box. But um, at 6% inflation rate in 20 years, it's going to, it would cost you about $31,000 to save up. That same amount of money. So inflation can be good for you, meaning it's the guy who started saving at age 22 and stopped at age 30, they're going on to 31, versus the guy who held off. That's the good side of it, meaning that that $18,000 turned into over $500,000. But the bad side is, is the longer you hold off, it is hurting you because things are costing you more and more and more money. Now, what can you do to fight inflation? I say you need to really employ the inflation fighters. And then when I talk about inflation fighters, I'm talking about stocks, I'm talking about mutual funds, I'm talking about real estate. You know, most people, their biggest investment is actually their primary residence because most people, as we've seen, are not saving what they need to. So they get lucky in the fact that they buy a house and it actually appreciates in value and goes up and becomes an asset for them. So, so you can see how buying a house is, is definitely an inflation fighter, but so is stock and bond and mutual fund investing. Um, I also want to tell you about a rule called the Rule of 72. I'm always surprised, and you know, it's, it's sad that we're not learning this more in high school, but the Rule of 72 can help you kind of be your friend and tool um, on how to calculate, you know, what, what interest rates you need or how things are going. Let me explain this to you. If you want to know how many years it's going to take to double an investment, all you have to do is take 72 and divide it by an interest rate. Meaning, let's do an example. If you, um, if you knew you could only, cash is getting somewhere around 3% right now, right? So if we, did, if we knew cash was only getting 3% a year, and we, we did 72 divided by 3%, it's going to take us 24 years to double our money. I mean, that's just real simple math. So obviously, you know, if we wanted to look at 6%, how long would it, you know, if we said, wait a minute, that's not good. So how long would it take to double our money with a 6% rate of return? Well, doing 72 divided by 6, you would see it would take 12 years to, to double your money. And that you can use that rule. It's pretty much universal. It's the same thing if you did a 12% rate of return. If you did 72 and divided by 12%, you know you double your money about every 6 years. You can also reverse the equation. You can say, I want to take 72, I want to divide it by how many years I think I have to double my investment, and that will give you the interest rate you need to require. So if you know, if you want to take 72... And you know you, you know you need to double your investment in um, six years because that's, that seems reasonable to you. Then you know you divide 72 divided by six, 
and you will come up with, you need to get about 12% rate of return. It's just a very good rule of thumb that makes things very easy for you to kind of figure out what you need to be earning as a rate of return. Now, next, next podcast that we're going to do is actually we're going to go in-depth with investment planning. I'm going to try to tell you about mutual funds. I'm going to tell you about bonds. I'm going to tell you how you really get into the details of investing to kind of help you out. But I'm not going to be able to spend a ton of time on that this episode, you know, on this podcast, just because I'm trying to get you excited about saving for retirement, put you in the mindset to try to figure out where you can come up with the extra money, and then next month, you know, or the, in the next two to three weeks, we'll come up with another podcast that'll actually get you in the details of investing. But I want I want to warn you, um, I'm kind of a pop culture geek, I guess you'd say. I watch a ton of TV, I watch a ton of movies. If you talk to anybody I know. You ask them what what's um, Brian's hobby, they'll probably say any reality TV show that's on at the moment. Because you know I do watch t- way too much TV. I do the fantasy football. I do all the other geeky things that you would expect somebody in my position to do. But um, I get so frustrated with my industry because I think the general public, if you ask them about investing, <laughs> the movie that comes to most people's mind is um, Wall Street and Gordon Gecko. Where greed is good, you know everybody's heard that quote. Greed is good, and then a, you know lesser-known movie that I think is um, just a complete debacle of a movie was um, when our boy Ben Affleck did Bowler Room, you know where he was you know talking about it was um, how they that movie listed is like it was the um, the easy money for the for you know for families or something. It was it was just ridiculous. That that movie was just a you know just not a good movie at all. But I wanted to warn you. I'm going to save you about four years of investing if you can get that mindset out of your mind. It is not investing like Gordon Gecko, where greed is good, where you're going out there and trying to find the next Microsoft, where you're trying to find the next Home Depot or the next technology company. These are not the ways you need to be investing. You need to be thinking about things where you can invest slow and steady and consistently to win the race. And I'm talking about index investing, buying index mutual funds. I'm talking about buying diversified mutual funds. I like a lot of the Fidelity stuff that's out there. Vanguard is very good. You just need to get out of that mindset that you're going to get rich quick. That's the biggest thing I see is so many people try to buy one or two different stocks. They get emotionally attached and they just lose all focus on what they're trying to do. And I think you just really need to be careful with that. You know, if you just do a slow and steady, nice, consistent index portfolio with some bonds, um, you can easily average about 12% a year. That's what the market has averaged from 1950 really to the middle of 2005, is it has averaged about 12% with about a 90% stock mix and a 10% bond. And you can adjust it, you know, depending on how your age and your risk profile, you, you can change that up a little bit. I did want to give you guys, because most of you are going to be investing in mutual funds, that's what I would recommend. 